Welcome to Eloquentia Perfecta Ex Machina, a podcast series devoted to the teaching of rhetoric and composition with and through a range of media and focused on the writing program at St. Louis University. This episode of Eloquentia Perfecta features a discussion of the English major, refugees, and the immigrant experience with Joya Yerezi, professor of post-colonial literature, and regional Emmy Award winner Harris Foslich, a Bosnian-American graduate student. In this episode, they discuss St. Louis's Bosnian community, the challenge of preserving language, and including underrepresented regions in literature classes. Hi, everyone. This is Joya Urezi. I teach postcolonial literature in the English department, and I'm here today with Harris Foslich, PhD student in the English department. And today we thought we'd talk about the refugee slash immigrant experience at SLU and in St. Louis in general. And uh, I thought I'd just start by asking uh, Harris about his own experience as a Bosnian refugee, starting possibly with your childhood, Harris, and then moving on to St. Louis and your academic career. Right. And I, I find that this is something that would be good to talk about, not just in terms of my own experience, but because uh, St. Louis has the largest population of Bosnians outside of Bosnia itself. Um, right, right. So geographically relevant issue. I was, uh, I identify as now as a, you would say, a Bosnian-American, right? But my entire life I've always been a Bosnian, even though I was born in Germany, right, as a refugee, moved to the States fairly young, and then everything from every moment since then, I've really sort of coined myself as a Bosnian. And in turn, I've ignored the formation of personal identity that those years, both in Germany and the, the early formative years in the States, contributed to who I am now. So now that I'm, that I'm teaching and that I'm imparting forms of knowledge onto people that are, that are younger than me, I'm trying to recapture what it means to have built up that identity any way that I can. So, and English, English always seemed to be the most, as a, as a subject, always seemed to be the most intriguing one, the most fascinating one, because not only did it, did it encapsulate so many different cultures, so many different national literatures into one and analyze them from different perspectives, but it also gives you an opportunity to use a lens to see other perspectives that you wouldn't usually, wouldn't usually be looking at. Right, right. And in fact, if I remember correctly, you also have interests in philosophy or uh, German philosophy. I do. Yeah, and I think I think that's one of those things that um, when I was getting my MA at Tulane in New Orleans, I really noticed that if I neglected the, the Germanist part of me, I would be doing myself a great disservice. And in turn, I tried to, since I study, I study Romanticism, British Romanticism, I felt that because it's so convenient that all of that is underlied by this great body of work by people like Kant and Schiller, that it would be it would be criminal of me, at least, to not address it. So again, I like to think of the, some people think of intertextuality, I like to think of interculturality and how all of the cultures affect one piece of writing or many pieces of writing. Right, absolutely. And I think English is the exact appropriate discipline for, for that uh, kind of in, ability to incorporate so many different cultural absolutely. things into one um, or several bodies of literature. But um, I know that you, your family is from St. Louis, and since you mentioned earlier that mm -hmm. the, the St. Louis is host to the largest uh, Bosnian population outside of Bosnia, 
Can you take us back a little bit to maybe how New Orleans or your undergrad experience was different from uh, what you've, I know you've just started here at SLU, but uh, if you can talk a little bit about how your interests shaped as an undergrad versus how they are now. Absolutely. Um, I would say that the biggest difference between St. Louis as a place in the United States and almost any other city in the United States is that there's a distinct sense of community in St. Louis as a Bosnian that you feel just by being here. And, uh, Joy, you, you maybe have personal experience with this. There, right. You know uh, there are so many Bosnian stores, uh, Bosnian restaurants, et cetera, where you can step in and buy all of the products. Oh, yes. That oh, you yes. can, right, the yeah. amazing the yeah, I'm partial to the, to the... Um, the cake shops in ah, particular, yeah. pastries. Then you would get along with my mother pretty well, <laughs> I would say. And the, the great thing is, not only do you feel as if there's a piece of, of home there, but you also feel a certain kinship with people that, um, that, it, that, that, you, can, that you can compare to something like, like being sheltered, for example. If someone grows up in this community, they're oftentimes defined by the values of, of this community, right? And that includes everything from... Um, from personal values, virtues, to political leanings, to the way that you view other people, right? And that's just that's just something that growing up in a certain type of community provides. So when you move away from it, naturally you're expanding your, your horizons and you're meeting new people, you're doing new things. However, you lose a certain sense of wholeness that you felt that... I would argue is is similar to sort of moving away from a, a, a home, moving away from a place where you have a, a group of people supporting you. And so I moved to Columbia, Missouri, which in fact is not very far at all. It's two hours away to go to the University of Missouri there, Mizzou. And while it was great, and I you know I made a lot of friends, I I learned a lot of of, of cool new information, but I I was missing that that communal feeling, and it was most represented in the um, the painful inability to not be able to speak my own language. So my native language is Bosnian. Right. And I spoke German as a child. I learned English eventually, you could say, right? I'm quite good at it, I like to think. But the the ability to not speak a language that I'm most comfortable in is very constricting. And in Colombia I felt that just because um, there were no there were Bosnians there. I didn't I didn't know that until my very last year. Mm-hmm. So I dove into my, my studies. I found English. I found, I always loved reading, but literature really drew me in. Um, also, I was just, I was so terrible at math that I could never be an engineer, which broke my dad's <laughs> heart. Um, you know, you have the traditional expectations that right. a father expects you to be right. um, a stemmer, and then you end up being a... An uh, English major. An English major, yeah. Uh, but I, I give them an excuse that I, will, I hope to be an academic, right, which I'm pretty sure translates quite well. Yeah. Nonetheless. Well, if I could just jump in, what you said resonates with me particularly because I'm also an immigrant. Right. And the exact same experiences of being, you know, as a young, when I was younger, uh, wanting to do my own thing, but also wanting to be part of that community, you get sort of get pulled in two directions. And I, the language issue particularly is important because I firmly believe that language is a part of your identity. And so when you, you're you isolated from that language environment, it changes you as a person. So yes, I, I uh, growing up in India, since it was multilingual, I felt that even within India also, particularly after coming to the US. But um, 
maybe we can come back to the issue of STEM versus not STEM and um, literature at SLU in a little bit. But tell me a little more about the whole experience of how it was to come back to St. Louis after right. being away. That was something because I, I had sort of a, a, a limbo where I, where I waited. Um, I graduated uh, in December from my undergrad, so I had to wait the six months before I could start my master's in Tulane. And all my friends were gone, which was very odd. So I kind of didn't even fathom that. I didn't think about that one piece. And I moved to New Orleans. New Orleans is an, in an incredibly diverse place. It was, it was amazing. I met people who spoke languages that I didn't know existed. I met people. I mean, I don't know if you've heard uh, the, the, the various Cajun dialects. I haven't heard them. I know of them, though. They are, I mean, they are, a, a good word is mesmerizing because it's kind of like when, uh, as a Bosnian, you meet people from the South, from the Bosnian South, my mother's family, no idea what they're saying. No clue. I can't, and I speak the language. So I had this just kind of beautiful brush with all of these different cultures, and I love that. I really do. And then, again, there were no... There were no Bosnians there. Didn't meet a single one. And I looked. I, I looked really hard. I really did. That's the first thing you do when you go there is you try to find the bakery. And right. you can't. I couldn't find <laughs> it. So I came back to St. Louis. I had applied to SLU. And I, I was very excited when you – actually, you sent me the – Right. I the, was acting grad director. <laughs> right. You were the one who had notified me of this news. And I just remember being so happy, not only because of what SLU meant to me, which I can discuss uh, in a moment, but – sort of what it meant to be back in a place where I knew I could be uh, myself. And, and my, my, my family is basically from here. This is my adopted hometown. So my parents are here. And the, the tight familial unit in Bosnian culture is uh, the epitome of sort of how your identity begins to, to define itself. Right. So my parents mean an immense deal to me. And they, they've shaped both my, my academic career as well as just obviously who I am. So to come back here and to to sort of be an adult in this in this community is very different than what it was like to be to grow up in it. Right. Because now I have I have um, I don't have any significant, I think, influence yet. Right. I'm still sort of in a transitional period. But it's good to know that I can advocate for things that I find are problematic in the community. I can address issues now on a broader scale because I have such a, um, I'm, in, I'm in a place where my, my opinion can reach more people, right? And I'm young too, which is fun, but it also lets me reach a certain audience that I think will listen to those issues. Yeah, and I, uh, I know uh, some people in your community, of course, socially, Mm -hmm. So I think I have some idea of some of the issues, social issues you mentioned, but can you give an example of some of the... Yeah, I would, I would really argue that the one that, that troubles me the most is really, and you mentioned it earlier, uh, about how language is critical to identity, and I absolutely agree with you. I couldn't agree with you more, is the fact that our culture, our language itself, is being lost mm -hmm. as the generations progress. Now, this is something that has been a problem in it's been just an immigrant issue right. when you come to a new place. Yeah. There's there's a sort of fracturing of identity that in turn either people will, will force their children to not learn the native tongue, not learn the language of the old country, or they will embed it so deeply uh, into their children that that they will eventually become like, like their parents. And I think that that's the split right now in the Bosnian community is that uh, so many people I'm, – so I'm 25 – so many people my age – I can't have a conversation with in Bosnian. 
they they there's this weird sort of hybrid language that comes about um, akin to Spanglish, for example, in many of the Latino communities in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and parts of Texas, where the languages are, are so mixed that there's no sort of definitive Bosnian or English, no Spanish or English. It's a mix. But for, for Bosnian, the problem is that there's no other sources of the language available because the community isn't that large elsewhere. Right. So you have to sort of... Um, you have to speak with the people that are around you and either, and this is the big debate, is whether parents are willing to put in that effort to teach their children the language right. or whether they just want their children to acclimate. And I, myself, would I would argue that I'm sort of the hybrid of those two perspectives because my Bosnian is far better than my English um, and my English is, is fairly good. So my parents... I've never spoken English to my parents um, unless there's been one of my friends present. And even then, it will be it'll be sparse. Whenever my parents and I speak, we speak in Bosnian, nothing else, except for when my dad tries to speak Russian, and it's terrible. <laughs> but you, you sort of have to force it upon children. And I think that that's one of our biggest issues as a community. Well, again, that resonates with me because I think it's true of many immigrant groups. And I, being a parent myself, have that same issue with my own kids. So I think it is tricky. I think some linguistic uh, analyses of this have been helpful to me in the past, and we can talk about that later. But essentially, it is it does fall on the parents a lot to make sure that the, whatever path they want their kids to take, linguistically speaking, that that happens. But uh, as I said, that's a larger issue that maybe we can have some other uh, have at some other time. <laughs> but let's move on more to literature now, then, and sure. see. Um, so you uh, you were attracted to SLU. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, and maybe again how literature. I have very strong feelings myself about the importance of literature in a person's identity, and we were talking just before. Uh, we started this session about the preference among immigrant groups of STEM fields. So maybe take us through some of those issues in terms of both your transition here and your liking for SLU and literature and right. stuff like that. Uh, well, to address the, the STEM issue, I think this is, I mean, this is going to be a, a cliche, right? If I talk about it, I have, I, have a, I have Bosnian parents and the joke always goes, do you want to be a doctor or an engineer? Sounds like Indian parents. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> and it's funny how the cultures can be so vastly different, and, and yet the parental cliches will not change across right. them. No, but uh, I have, I'm, I'm very lucky to have, to have parents that um, supported me regardless of what I chose to do, um, mostly because they realized I, I just my aptitude for calculus was so poor. Same. I I uh, I can identify with that completely. I appreciate, yes. I appreciate it. But in terms of in terms of uh, Slu's draw, I actually went to high school a block away from here. Oh, really? I went to high school at Metro High School. Oh, I see. Which anyone who is familiar with Slu can walk. They don't even have to walk. They can right. see it from right. here. And and when I was in high school, Slu always stood as a very physically imposing presence. Because my whole life, I was educated in public schools. I've never been to a private school well until I went to my master's. But everything was always public. So the draw of a private, very respected school for us was um, sort of the epitome of what you could be, of what you could achieve, right? And I actually, when I was was applying for undergrad, I didn't apply to SLU because I didn't think I could get in. 
that was my biggest that was my biggest fear and I couldn't handle that rejection uh, and I and I, I just remember I didn't apply and to come back to think about coming back I always wondered what it would actually mean to be a part of the of the SLU community and I think I've been I think I've been rewarded with 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 the kind of the graciousness of the people that I've met in, in our department because English and we talked about this before is a very it's a very diverse for such a for such an odd term to call well let's call it let's call it literature rather than English I think it's more appropriate right um, literature is something that can bring the most diverse people together absolutely and I think that uh, the idea of literatures working together to create something um, more than just literature itself is really what the the true draw of the of the field is and I think that for me SLU was the place that made that made that possible. I was always interested in romanticism, so um, I knew that that Dr. Bennis taught here, and I've read her work, mm-hmm. and I thought, man, it would be really, it would be great to work with her. And while that dream has already come true, uh, it, it was pretty great. It was well worth it, I would say. I was amazed by the just the wealth of knowledge that I met from people who were so far outside my field. For example, you and I, we went to that. We went to a post-colonial reading right. group, right? right? And we got to do something I dreamed of since I was a kid. We got to discuss Danilo Kish, yes. one of the most famous Yugoslavian authors ever. And I discussed it with you and with three other people. None of us studied the same thing. Right. That was a dream come true for me. And I don't know where else that could have happened. So for that to be incubated, and I might add, this was my first semester here that that happened. So I can only imagine where it would go from there. Well, that's wonderful to hear. I know that there are lots of, uh, the faculty here do a lot of exciting research. And of course, sometimes we feel constrained that we aren't doing as much as we'd like. Mm -hmm. But in particular, I've seen, um, when you're talking about the diversity side, uh, there's a a wealth of research, you know, from um, within literature, and then there's also rhetoric and creative writing as well. Um, But, you know, I mean, that reading group you mentioned, for example, is one of several that graduate students run uh, pretty much on their own steam. And we just happened that semester to be uh, teach. The the graduate students select what they want to read. Right. And they usually select things that are not too lengthy because, you know, you're doing that in addition to everything else. So I, I... I can't claim credit for having selected Kish, but I know that uh, one of the graduate students was interested. And many years ago, when I was new to SLU, there was a regularly taught course called Eastern European Literature at the undergrad level. Unfortunately, we stopped teaching that because the faculty member who taught it has left. But it's one example of directions that we could go in to expand uh, our array of offerings. And of course, you know, you can incorporate that into world-lit courses and other things as well. But um, the focus on literatures coming from other parts of the world is something that's very dear to my heart. And um, I find that frequently people, at least at kids at the undergrad level, are interested, but they haven't been exposed much to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's my own area, which is African literature, or, uh, you know, as you mentioned, Eastern European. Right. So maybe this is a good time to, add, to discuss what you see as some of the ways in which our interests as a department in literatures from other parts of the world uh, might be 
tapped into more, given that we already have, of course, a uh, Department of Languages, Literatures, and Cultures. And I think we were talking just before uh, we started this session about uh, new faculty members in those departments. Um, but, you know, if in your dream world, where would you like, uh, what, what other kinds of options would you like to see, whether it's graduate or undergraduate level in terms of literature from other parts of the world? Right. I am. This is something that I'm that I'm so fascinated by. Uh, just in just in terms of uh, of development across English departments um, mm -hmm. in the United States, and that's sort of how how do you decide what is relevant enough to be included in a in a course offering? Right. Many of the times, it's down to the to the individual professor who um, who feels that something is either relevant to their own interest area or you get the the this this sort of question asked to someone like me, um, which I feel doesn't happen very often. But in my ideal world, I would like I would like something as broad as that Eastern European. Um, and I'm not supporting I don't support this moniker for for my <laughs> own country, as I'm sure that other Eastern Europeans uh, probably don't. But we are Southern. We are just as South as Italy is. Regardless, I think that you have kind of uh, an umbrella term that will cover literature that is not just sort of un un untalked about. Not a good way to put it. As uh, not readily discussed in um, in the classroom, then but also brings some sort of of relevance to issues that are that are that are current, right? Then I think that would be good. So, for example, if you if you did a course that had um, famous Yugoslavian writers like Ivo Andrić or um, uh, Zuko Jumhur or any of these any of these guys who wrote the very the big the big Bosnian epics, as well as people who were more modernist like Kish or um, like uh, the the author that we were just talking about here before, who who wrote the Sarajevo Blues. Um, Various war stories. I would like it. I would Sme like Smedin. I'm probably mispronouncing it. Uh, how do you pronounce this? Semezdin Mehmedovic. Okay. Yeah, Mehmedinovic. Mehmedinovic. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think that we would have to do a introductory course where we just work on name pronunciations. <laughs> Absolutely. Beforehand, um, <laughs> but I think that the difficult thing would be sort of making it as contemporary as canonized literature is. I think that's the real challenge. Right. This is a subject that I uh, wrestle with all the time, uh, not necessarily from an European perspective, but um, primarily African. Mm -hmm. And what I have discovered is that, uh, well, my it's my firm belief that some of the finest writing in the world is coming out of the African diaspora. So for its own sake, it should be studied and not necessarily just to, you know, educate people about other parts of the world. But in addition to that, as you mentioned, the, the literature itself is filled with themes and images and, and um, characters that actually do resonate uh, on many levels with undergrads and grads. And for example, there's a novel I'm teaching in my class. I will be, actually. We haven't started it yet, uh, called Americana by a Nigerian-American author called Chimamanda Adichie. And it's if you replace the, some of the character names, it would be sort of, in many ways, a, an immigrant novel. It's about a young girl from Nigeria who comes to America and her struggles, basically, uh, for to identify herself, and then she considers going back. And a lot of other things going on. But it's beautifully written. And in many ways that it sort of reflects the immigrant experience that a lot of immigrant groups have faced. 
And what I have uh, seen is just sort of leaving aside this, looking at it more from an administrative point of view, there are lots of models, lots of ways of going about it. There are some English departments that routinely offer courses in world lit, let's say. And that would be uh, one place to insert the kinds of voices you're talking about. There are other departments, for example, I think Harvard does this uh, very uh, with a lot of flair, complete. Uh, where they have faculty members who are equally proficient in two languages and make frequent uh, connections between them. And uh, that has, uh, in some ways, world lit is a bit of a loaded political term. Mm -hmm. Some people don't like it. Eastern European lit, as you said, also has its own uh, drawbacks. Uh, Similarly, post-colonial lit is very much an umbrella term that covers too much. So whatever label you put on it, sometimes just encouraging the comparison between two cultures from a literature point of view is satisfying. It's not the only way to do it, though. So, so I thought, wondered if you had thoughts on that. Well, I do. But, I'm, but what I'm more curious about is, so now we're, we're discussing courses that are just, that are purely literature courses, right? Ones that cover um, the, primarily the literature um, spectrum. But how would would you would you think that it's that it's valuable to include um, any kind and and maybe you do this um, since just because just because you're you're you have such a an emphasis on uh, world liter- literature from different parts of the world do you think that there's any value in including this in say introductory English classes um, like our like our rhetoric cla- like our introductory rhetoric class here at SLU? Uh, well. From a rhetor, uh, you know, for rhetoric courses, I think the focus should be rightly so primarily on rhetoric. But examples definitely could be used from writing from other parts of the world. Uh, definitely in literature courses, I think it's absolutely there's you know in your intro to lit, let's say, um, uh, there's intro to fiction, intro to poetry. It's always a good idea, I think, to throw in literature from all over the world. Uh, mainly because the it's an intro, it should, the course should be what it says, which is sort of more at the introductory level. And exposing students to literature from various places is is extremely good. To give you an example, I was fortunate to teach uh, SLU. I don't know if you know this. SLU has a college in prison program, and I was fortunate to be able to teach in that last spring. And then I'll be teaching again next month. And we. Uh, although I wasn't the only one deciding uh, the readings, there were other people involved. But one of the the uh, things the incarcerated students read was by a Haitian-American novelist. Uh, it was actually a memoir. I don't know if you've heard of Edwidge Danticat. She is uh, one of the uh, finest writers, uh, American-Haitian writers uh, today. And this was her memoir. And uh, this the students, of course, I'm assuming most of them hadn't been to Haiti. They didn't know much about Haiti other than earthquakes. But it was they were so enthusiastic. Some of them had read the text the very first day and came to me and said, what do I do now? I finished, finished the reading assignments. And then we actually had her come in. Again, this wasn't me. This was done through the college and prison program. They were able to uh, write, get funding to fly her in. And it was the highlight of everyone's experiences. And it tells you, again, that uh, you know literature like that resonates with people at different levels. And more than resonate, I think I would say it gives them a sense of their own identity as well. 
just, you know, one of the things, for example, had dealt with separation. It was a memoir about two brothers who were separated. And uh, it's obvious, kind of obvious that people who are incarcerated would understand that very acutely, what it's like to be separated. So, so those kinds of, uh, the ability of literature to reach out across cultures like that, I think, is huge. And it, that is also true of rhetoric, of course. But um, in a literature classroom, I think it just is a little more obvious. So. I think I, I I think that another great sort of power that just immigrant narratives have is that they don't speak just to the immigrant experience. Right. When we think about separation, it can be applied even in this in this Haitian text. It can yeah. be applied to someone who's living in the American Midwest. Right. Right. But immigration narratives specifically have this this fascinating power to address so many themes in that the so many themes that are just so applicable to um to so many other things and in some sense i i wonder if if it's maybe that kind of uh of umbrella that would be good for studying for studying those various literatures right so rather than it being eastern european lit right. or say um turkish lit or something like that that there could be a you know, a, 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 an immigrant lit or a, a, I don't want, I don't like the idea of a refugee literature that, that that's troubling to me for a number of reasons, right. especially when you start talking about personal experience and what, um, perhaps certain individuals have been through, but in terms of just stories of, of movement and of, especially now, uh, of transatlanticism, how that could be collected and construed as a, as a class theme, I think would be, would be fascinating. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We actually, there was a PhD student in the department uh, who graduated several years ago who wrote a dissertation on immigrant narratives from primarily from the point of view of women. And she focused on, I think, Asian American women, um, Latino women, and uh, she had, a, there were several writers in there, most of whom I wasn't, I was a reader on her dissertation and it was very educational for me because a lot of the writers she was talking about were contemporary women. Some of them were actually, at some point, illegal immigrants, and their experiences were very vivid. And, you know, it doesn't, I guess, from a literary point of view, the, um, the for lack of a better word, the uh, literary quality of these, all of the texts aren't the same, of course. There is some unevenness also in the way the narrative unfolds. But nevertheless, they, uh, the uh, writers she was dealing with were had all written more than one text. And uh, it was uh, very, I found it very interesting to read read, uh, read up about it. But um, maybe this is the time, I mean, if you were, um, since you will eventually be writing a dissertation, uh, possibly your own research, whether that's um, in some ways, we, we always put a little bit of ourselves in our writing. Um, so how would that, I mean, if, for example, I'm working on a project right now on refugee narratives, but I've, I'm right at the start of that project, and I decided to focus on children in Africa, uh, mainly because I it may not be very well known, but the largest number of refugees in the world, or the largest host countries for refugees in the world, are mostly in Africa. And... So I had the opportunity to visit a refugee camp in northern Uganda, and it was uh, it was very very moving. It was a very moving experience. But I'm at the stage now where I'm realizing that it's hard for me to find uh, 
narratives written by children, uh, or rather adults who were refugees once as children, based in Africa. Um, so, so the project is is ongoing. But do you see that any of your own experiences might eventually make their way into your, in an indirect form, of course, into your, whatever it is that your research evolves into? That's a question I, I, it's it's interesting that you ask it, Joya, because that's a question I've been asking myself since, I mean, it's been, it's it's on eight years now that I've been asking that. How, how relevant is my own experience and is there a place for it? And I always was sort of under the impression that no one really cared about where I where I came from or what my particular story was. And in some senses, I still feel that way to a degree. I don't know if that'll ever really go away. But I do know that there are there are ideas that that I get from that experience that that probably would would make it into my own work. So I'm I'm fascinated, for example, on how Coleridge, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, managed to get so many ideas from Germany and turn them into his first work and or into into his large um, nonfiction work, the Biographia Literaria. Right. The simple fact is that he would have had no access to these ideas were it not for these German sources. Of course, uh, please don't take this as a final version of my dissertation. <laughs> no, um, certainly not. <laughs> but there's a certain, it's a very aggressive term, there's a certain theft of ideas that occurs. And it's through that theft that there's a definition of literary identity occurring. Literally, Biographia Literaria is the name of the, of the right. work. And so much of it is predicated upon work that's been done in another country. So there have been these, there's this, this wild notion about the U.S. space program not being a, a, in existence were it not for Yugoslavian engineers that were sent. Oh, really? Yeah. I, hadn't, I hadn't heard that. It's fascinating. Uh, were, these, were these Yugoslavian engineers not sent to, to the United States during Kennedy's reign, then the space program would have never happened hmm. because Yugoslavia, Tito sold these faulty plans to the United States. And all the money that he received for those plans was what brought Yugoslavia to its crowning glory in the 60s and 70s. Oh, wow. I, had, I hadn't heard yeah, of that. Yeah, I know. It's, it, well, the, the, one of the scientists who was sent, was, they faked his death, right? And Faked so, his death? Yeah, they had to fake the deaths so they could send the engineers to the United States. He came back to former Yugoslavia, met his daughter, and the story came out. This is very recent that this mm. happened. Uh, but it's this kind of thing that I feel has always been a part of our culture here. If you think even further back, you think about Nikola Tesla and the sort of uh, the contention between who actually invented electricity, right, which is a massive point of pride for the American culture and Thomas Edison. Uh, if you ask a Croatian, a Serb, or a Bosnian, every one of them will say Tesla is theirs. Tesla is the one who invented it, right? So... In my own work, I like to think that there will be something of, of at least an awareness of where ideas come from. Right. And I think the only way I could have developed that is by being distinctly aware of where my own ideas of selfhood and of, uh, of my culture come from. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think uh, we're probably out of time, but uh, it, I think it's, a, it's fair to say that a lot of post-colonial critics uh, tend to wear that on their sleeves. In other words, they will... As they write, they they declare, I am so-and-so, a product of so-and-so, and I'm coming from this angle, and this is what I have to say. And uh, that kind of self-awareness is, I think, fairly commonplace now, but 
step, that's one way of doing it. The other way of doing it is just to insert it into your work. But anyway, I'm sure that will be a brilliant dissertation in its day. And I'll leave you to end uh, our conversation with any last thoughts about your I, work or slew or whatever. I think that this like. it's a it's sort of a testament to to all this all this great work that's been done by by immigrants in academia that we're sitting here recording this absolutely right now. You are you're a, you're a bit of a, a a very a very good role model for me. Oh, thank you. In my own work, I hope um, so. And it's it's good to be in a place a place like SLU where. I can I can explore these things and speak to people who who uh, who share the same values as me yes, about them. Yes, absolutely. So, Likewise. Yeah. Thank okay. you very much. Thank you. If you'd like to get involved in this podcast series, share an assignment, tool, or even to pitch an interview, please contact me, Byron Gilman Hernandez at byron.gilmanhernandez at slu.edu. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina.